Daniel chapter 6. Last week we looked at persecution by ravenous liars. Today our lesson, yeah, last class, persecution by ravenous liars. Today we're going to be looking at preservation in a ravenous lair. Remember I told you what a lair is? It's just another word for a den, a lion's den. All right, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity we have in a free country to assemble together for the sole purpose of studying your word, to get you know you better through your word, to fellowship with sisters in Christ. Thank you for those who brought food today. That's always an added pleasure. Thank you for the breakfast food and for the coffee and for those who prepared it for us. Thank you um, for all that you're going to do this morning. We ask that your spirit would be our teacher, that he would help me, Lord, to say things clearly, loudly enough for everybody to hear. And that I would only say those things that would be pleasing and honorable to you. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Daniel chapter 6 may have roaring lions, ravenous lions in a lair at the end of the chapter, which we will surely look at today. But the worst lion of all is the one who is behind the whole scene. From the very beginning of the chapter, he is the one who snarls out his lies and his deceit against God's faithful servant, Daniel, through the lips of a bunch of ravenous liars. I should say through a pride of ravenous liars. You know what a group of lions is called? You know, there's a flock of geese and a herd. Well, lions come in prides. And I thought that is so appropriate, isn't it? The irony of the entire situation that's going on in this chapter, which really nobody involved understood other than Daniel, was that those presidents and those princes prided themselves on their clever manipulation of their earthly king, Darius, to do their bidding. They wanted Daniel dead, so they manipulated him, and they were proud that they had succeeded, when really the fact of the matter is that they were by far the bigger losers because they had been manipulated by their spiritual king. You see, they were members of the kingdom of darkness, so who was their king? Satan. They had been manipulated by Satan to do his bidding. Those corrupt court conspirators had absolutely no concept, as most of the people in this world do not either. They had no concept of their part in the ongoing spiritual warfare between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. Is there a warfare going on in the heavenlies that we cannot see? Actually, you sort of can see it. You can see the fruit of it if you just turn the TV on and listen to the news, right? There is a war going on between Satan and God. And they did not have a clue that they were actually being used as Satan's pawns to try to stop Daniel from addressing the throne of grace on behalf of his people, the Jews. You see, for almost 70 years, three times a day, Daniel... That faithful prayer warrior sought God's forgiveness for the sins of his people in having turned from him to idols. Isn't that why they were in captivity in the first place? Because they had turned to idolatry. So he, he just pounded the throne of grace on behalf of his people to forgive them. He also sought forgiveness for Israel, <clears throat> having neglected his laws and reinterpreted his laws, which is what we're trying to do today. 
you know, reinterpret, well, God didn't really mean this and God didn't really mean that. And, you know, we may have to make it politically correct. Well, they had been doing all that. And they had neglected for one law, the Sabbath, Sabbath a year of rest for the land law. That's a funny title, but I don't know what else to call it. The sabbatic year of rest for the land law. <laughs> I can't come up with anything better. But how many years had they not given the land rest? On You know, they were supposed to work the land for six years, and on the seventh year, let it rest. How many years had they neglected to do that? No, 490 years. So you divide that by seven, and that's why they were in captivity for 70 years. Because God had to give the land the rest that they had neglected to do. Also, Daniel would steadfastly pray that when they were finally set free, and you see, he was a student of the scripture, wasn't he? He had been reading the scrolls of Jeremiah and Isaiah, which said that they would be set free from their captivity in Babylon after 70 years, and he knew that. And so he prayed that when they were finally allowed to go back to Israel, that they would actually return Do you know out of about a million people that were captive in Babylon, do you know how many initially returned with Zerubbabel? About 42,000 was all. That's a very small percentage. Why do you think that was? Well, things were comfortable in materialistic Babylon. Why would you want to go back to a land that had been desolated and there was nothing there? The temple was gone. Everything had been wiped out. Most of the people were born in Babylon after 70 years. You know, the younger generation, they had never been to Israel. And so Daniel, you know, he was, he was praying for his people. And there, thus for Satan, you see, the primary issue in desiring to kill Daniel was not so much that he would not be the, the prime minister. That's why the princes and presidents didn't want him, because he was going to get promoted to second under Darius. That was not a big deal for Satan. Why did Satan want Daniel killed? He wanted him to cease praying. Also, think about this. Daniel had not yet written the book of Daniel. He had received a lot of prophecies in his long life from from God. And I'm sure he had taken notes on all those and, you know, and the prophecies given to Nebuchadnezzar and he wrote down uh, the account of the fiery furnace and the handwriting on the wall etc etc and by this point he's already received all the prophecies we're going to be talking about chapter 7 and 8 but the Holy Spirit had not yet inspired him to write those down in the ongoing book of divine revelation that he was progressively putting together you think Satan didn't notice that the Holy Spirit was progressively putting together this book Well, if he succeeded in killing Daniel at this point in time in the lion's den, we wouldn't be studying this book today, would we? All right, so that's a big picture. It's not just a picture about a bunch of bad guys wanting to kill Daniel. There's a bigger picture always in the world that's going on. So it was, indeed, it was an incredible act of faith and courage that Daniel braved being thrown down into the lion's den, but it was far greater far greater, that regardless of the personal cost to himself, he continued to engage in spiritual warfare against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world, who ever since having heard God's first message of a coming Savior, the seed of the woman, back in Genesis 3.15, called the Proto-Evangelium, 
After the fall of Adam and Eve, Satan was there, wasn't he, in the garden? And he heard God promise to send a Savior. Ever since hearing that, he and his fallen evil spirits, the demons, had been trying to prevent the promised Savior, the seed of the woman, from coming. Uh, in the You know, coming, period, the first coming. That's what the Old Testament is all about, really. And it started with Abel, didn't it? Abel, the righteous seed of Eve, you know, and he figured that would be, she even thought maybe he was the promised seed of the woman. Um, But it would definitely be through the seed of Abel that the Messiah would come. And so what did Satan do? Had Cain kill him? Cain was of the wicked one, we're told in 1 John. And so from the very beginning was always Satan doing everything he could to prevent the Messiah from coming just the way God had predicted through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then narrowing it down, Judah, and then through the throne line of David. And at one point in time, um, it came down to one little boy, right, that would carry on the messianic line. One little boy, Joash, who was hidden by his nursemaid. But, you know, Satan would try to kill off and prevent everything from happening, and then God would counteract. Well, God already had a plan anyway. It, wasn't, it was going to happen just like he said because he's really the one in control. But that's what the whole Old Testament is all about. But da- Daniel's faithful, God-centered centered prayers were hindering Satan's work to try to entice the Jews to remain in Babylon, intermarry with the people there, you know, completely amalgamate and stop being a separate people um, and thus prevent Christ coming precisely the way that God had said. Because, you know, God said he's going to come and it's going to be in the land, isn't it? The land of Israel from Bethlehem Ephrata of Judea. So for Daniel now, his own private spiritual battle, it took place and was won. Where did Daniel's private spiritual battle Get one. Bad English, but... (laughs) Was it in the lion's den? Right. His spiritual battle was won on his knees before an open window. Not in the lion's den. And this would be true 500 years later for the Lord Jesus Christ, who actually won his own spiritual battle... And I am talking about with regard to his humanity. Jesus Christ was 100% God and 100% man. That's the hypostatic union. It's very difficult to understand, but that's who he was. He wasn't 50% God and 50% man. He was 100% of both. So in his humanity, he won his spiritual battle against the forces of evil where? Just like Daniel. On his knees and where was he? Garden of Gethsemane, exactly. It was uh, on the cross where he yielded his human body, but it was on his knees in the garden that he yielded his human will. You know, I'd rather not drink this cup, Father, but nevertheless, not my will be done, but thine. That's where he won his battle. And in the lion's den, Daniel, same thing. He was willing to yield his body. He didn't have to, did he? But he was willing to, but it was on his knees before an open window that he was yielding his will. So the outcome of Satan's manipulation of Daniel's rivals at court, his enemies, 
And their manipulation of King Darius, see, everybody was manipulating somebody else. Isn't that what this world is doing all the time, manipulation and all this scheming and everything? But the outcome of all of that manipulation was that King Darius signed a law that prohibited religious freedom. Hmm. Interesting. You think Satan is still alive and well on planet Earth in the 21st century? Using the same tactics to inhibit, you know, to prohibit religious freedom. And we see that going on all around us. Well, as we closed up our last lesson, the king was sore displeased with who? With himself. He was very upset with himself when he heard the accusation that was made by the presidents and princes against Daniel. You know, it dawned on him how dumb he had been. And he immediately set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. He tried all day long, he tried to find a way to keep the man he so greatly admired from suffering the consequences of his own proud and foolish decision. He was literally torn up inside for having believed men he never should have trusted. He felt probably embarrassed about it all, that he had been so manipulated by these men. And I'm sure he felt guilty for having allowed the flattery of their God-for-a-month plan to blindside him. Do you remember, are you old enough like me to remember that program, Queen for a Day? (laughs) Younger ones go, what? Uh, There was a program called Queen. You could be a queen for a day. Um, Well, this was a God for a month day plan. (laughs) And he fell for it. He had been naive and he had been far too hasty. And I was thinking about the fact that, you know, he was a former military general. And so he was used to, to men under him, his soldiers. He was used to them being loyal and honest. Because in the military, you work together. You know, you don't deceive your commanding officer because then you might lose the battle and people would lose their lives. So he was used to those under him being loyal and truthful, etc. He wasn't used to crafty politicians. And so he fell for their, their little scam. And in a very sincere effort, he then worked diligently until the setting of the sun, we learned in verse 14, to find some way that he could possibly reinterpret that law he had written, which was, you know, no man, nobody can pray to anyone except him, petition anyone, any God or any man except him for 30 days. He tried to find a loophole by which he could excuse Daniel from suffering the penalty of, of suffering in a lion's dead, but he found what? He, he just came up empty-handed. He found no solution whatsoever to circumvent what he had done. And he was king. He was king. And yet, he was utterly helpless to deliver the greatest man of integrity that he had ever known. So, we're going to look now at verses 15 to 28 and talk about the prosecution of Daniel. So look with me at those verses. It says, Then these men, and that would be the presidents and the the princes, assembled unto the king and said unto the king, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and Persians is, and here they're going to tell him as if he didn't know, that no decree nor statute which the king establisheth may be changed. So he's up against a rock in a hard place. And so he commanded and they brought 
Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. And a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, that would be his ring, and with the signet of his lords, that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. Well, what this tells us is that at the end of the day, the same day that Daniel had been accused of having broken this new law, the conspirators again uh, assembled before the king, and this is the third time they come before him. The first time they came before him was in chapter, I mean, verse 6, which was to get him to sign the decree. You know, they told him about their little plan, and he signed it. The second time they assembled before the king was in verse 12, and that's when they accused Daniel. You know, we caught him praying three times a day. Now, they, I think they watched him. This wasn't all the same day. They watched him for a while, and they saw that he just continued to do his three times a day prayer. And so they assembled before the king and accused him. And now in this account for the third time, uh, they come before the king, but their motive now is to get Darius to admit that he could not alter his own law, nor could he delay any longer in executing the required punishment for Daniel. You see, it was Persian law that a man be executed on the same day he was declared guilty. And it was earlier that day that he had been declared guilty of breaking the law, so he had to be executed before the end of that day. Their days didn't begin at uh, sunset like the Jews, so it was still the day. Sun had gone down, but it was still the same day he had been accused. Isn't it so true that about the only time evil men really care about laws being enforced is when it is to their own personal advantage and gain? That's so very true. Their demand here for the king to enforce the law was not because they were such upright law-abiding citizens <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Why did they want to kill Daniel in the begin to, to begin with? They wanted to kill Daniel because of the fact that he was such a stickler for law enforcement that he made sure that they could not do any damage to the king. Uh, by their corruption. That was back in verse 2. This was true with the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees of Jesus' day too, wasn't it? You know, when people hate someone enough to want to kill him or her, they don't really care to know the truth about that person. Just like with Jesus. You know, they didn't really care to know the truth if he really was who he said he was. And he was, right? Uh, they just hated him and wanted to get rid of him. Same thing with Daniel. Uh, they... they um, they actually knew Daniel was a good guy, a really good guy, because they couldn't find anything against him except for his fanaticism for his God. But, you know, truth or no truth, they just wanted to get rid of him. Why was that? Well, because like the religious rulers of the Lord's Day, these presidents and prince, princes of the Medo-Persian Empire only cared about winning. They just wanted to win. Why did they want to win? Because they wanted to keep their own positions of power. And they wanted to personally um, profit from their positions. And so they just wanted to get, a, get rid of anybody who stood in their way. Plus, too much light was shining on their darkness with Jesus and same thing with Daniel. There's a lot of comparisons when we think about Daniel and the lion's den and Jesus and uh, 
his enemies. You can also go back to Joseph and his brothers hating him for envy. Same old thing. It's, you know, it seems like um, Joseph and Daniel and Jonah, those three stories are all prophetic pictures in type of, the, of, of Jesus. You know, being hated for no reason, thrown into a pit, etc., you know, by his enemies. And, and here's another comparison. Darius, just like Pontius Pilate, realized the envy of Daniel's accusers, the conspirators against him. He realized, even though it was too late, but he did realize how they had used him as a pawn in their scheme to get rid of Daniel. And yet, just like Pilate, rather than do the right thing, regardless of that irreversible nature of the Medo-Persian law, and possibly lose his own position if Cyrus would find out what he had done. See, Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, but who was over him? Caesar of the whole Roman Empire. And when the Jews said, ah, you're no friend of Caesar, he feared, because he was already on shaky ground with Caesar, he feared for his position, and so he capitulated, didn't he? And he put to death an innocent man. Darius does the same thing because he's, you know, perhaps fearful of losing his position if Cyrus should find out that he broke the irreversible nature of the Medo-Persian law. What he should have done is done what was right. He knew Daniel was innocent, that Daniel was a good man, the best worker he'd ever had, a man of great integrity, and he should have just left the outcome to God, but he didn't believe in God, did he? So just like Pilate... He succumbed to the will of his officials. So he gave the command to bring Daniel forth that he might be cast into the lion's den. And the word in Aramaic for den is, it refers to a pit or a cistern, a cave. And the account, as you read through this, uh, the description of the den that Daniel gives us indicates that the lions were in a large pit below the level of any spectators. So it's not like an open zoo situation, you know, a cage, and the lions are in the cage. The spectators are up above, and they're looking down at the lions below in some kind of a cistern. And uh, again, what does this remind us of? Joseph's jealous brothers throwing him into a, into a pit. And the pits back in that day, ancient times, were empty wells. You know, the water had dried up. But there also would be a large stone that they would put over the pit, you know, the well. Why? To prevent animals from falling down into the well or little children or whatever, you know, and contaminating the water. <clears throat> So there was evidently, and and we're told that this um, lion's den was covered with a heavy stone as well. So evidently there was only one point of entry into this den, at least up at the top, because only one stone was needed to close that mouth of the den. Are you following me so far? (laughs) Now, according to ancient lion's dens, which they have discovered in the Near East, such as one they found in Morocco... Such a den as Daniel was tossed into would likely have been a large square cavern under the earth with a a wall, a partition wall right down the center of that cavern. 
and a door in that wall. And the door could be slid from the den keepers up above. They had some kind of apparatus to slide the door back and forth. What they would do is they would throw food into one half of that cistern to entice the lions to go through the open door to get the food. As soon as all the lions were in there, they would close the door, and then they could enter the uh, empty part and clean it of dead carcasses and feces and all that, whatever. But they could clean it out. So you following me? And they've actually found lion's dens just like that. The Medes and the Persians were experts at capital punishment. Isn't that a great thing to be an expert at? How to put people to death. <laughs> and the Persians, and you know, they are the ancestors of the Iranians today. They're still at it, aren't they? Uh, with their nuclear capacity they're working on. Well, the Persians actually were the ones who invented crucifixion right around this same time, same time as Daniel, which initially was impaling a person on a vertical stake. Their mentality was to make death, the death of a criminal or a dissident, just as gruesome and as horrific as they possibly could as a deterrent to the disobedience of others. And that probably was pretty pretty effective, wouldn't you think? <laughs> I would think so. It's interesting to know that um, Nebuchadnezzar uh, didn't use lions to execute people. Remember what he wanted, always wanted to do? <laughs> cut, cut them up in pieces and make their houses into dunghills. <laughs> Cut them up into pieces. And the other way was fiery furnace, right? Ah, but the Medes and, the, and, and Daniel, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar didn't use lions because he, he was obsessed with lions. He respected lions. He collected lions. Some of these lions may be left over from the lions he had collected. He loved lions. Remember Babylon's full of lions. Beautiful mosaic tiles, walls of lions. The Ishtar Gate has lions on as you enter into the city, and it's in Berlin now. Um, but he was obsessed with lions. A lot of kings used to be obsessed with lions because they thought that that pictured them and their great prowess. And what they would do is every once in a while they'd go and kill a lion just to show everybody how mighty and strong they were. But first of all, of course, they'd have the lion sedated or injured by someone else, and then they would go in and look like the hero. But he didn't use lions to put people to death, and the Medes and Persians didn't use fire to put people to death. Now, can anybody guess why? Remember I told you about their religion? And, and, uh, one God used the flame as the exactly. They were into Zoroastrianism, and their God was uh, Ahura Mazda, <laughs> and he was represented to them by sacred fire. So they thought it would be a dishonoring to their God to execute criminals with fire. That's just That was all free. <laughs> But it's interesting, isn't it, to learn little details like this? <clears throat> well, Darius's parting words to Daniel were meant to be full of conf confidence. You know, it's like when somebody's going to have surgery or something, you know, you're going to make it. I know you're going to make it. You're going to be fine. Everything is going to be fine. So it's kind of like what he's doing, trying to give him a little confidence and comfort when he says, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. Now, do you think he really, really, really believed that? I don't think he really believed it, but possibly he had just a smidgen of hope because I am sure he had heard this story about the, Daniel's three friends 
Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and how they had been delivered from Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. So he might have had a little bit of hope that his words would come true. But one thing was for sure. Daniel's deliverance was not going to come from Darius, was it? He tried. He tried all day long, but he had failed. So if it was going to happen at all, it was going to have to come from Daniel's God. And as had been the case with Daniel's enemies... Darius had observed Daniel enough to know that he was a man who constantly and continuously and sincerely served his God. It's very apparent. I mean, his enemies knew him. Darius knew him. You know, you continually serve. So it's very obvious that Daniel was not a secret disciple, was he? He was bold. He told everybody he met about his God. Now, although Darius probably didn't truly believe what he said, nonetheless, God can use the mouth of anybody, right, to speak the truth. He actually spoke a prophecy through Darius's lips because God did deliver him, didn't he? It's pathetic, and I hate, to th- I hate it when I hear about old people who are attacked by young thugs and just... Ugh, anyway, it, but, so it's very hard for me to think of this old, frail... I don't think Daniel was fat, do you? I mean, a diet of vegetables and water. <laughs> so I got a picture of him as an old, skinny, you know, man. Healthy, yes, healthy. Um, but, but thin and frail and 85 years old or whatever he was in his 80s. Um, being thrown down, cast down. Here, a kind, hearted, gentle, sweet, righteous man like Daniel being cast down to a bunch of roaring lions to be just torn limb from limb. It's just horrible to be treated as a a common criminal when the real criminals were probably there, you know, uh, outside, and they're so happy that they're going to be finished with Daniel. This again reminds me of the crucifixion of our Lord, doesn't it? I mean, treating him, the only man who had never sinned in his entire life, and treating him as a common criminal... And all the lions are out, you know, around the, the, the cross, and they're, they're just so happy, so happy that they're going to be rid of him. However, sovereign God has a way of righting wrongs, doesn't he? You know, one day, every wrong that has ever been committed in the history of humanity is going to be righted. I long for that time. Sometimes it's sooner than later. You know, sometimes it won't be until the end, but one day he is going to right every wrong. In this situation, it wasn't even 24 hours before the right, the wrong was righted. Daniel was exonerated, and the real culprits reaped every bit of the evil that they had sown. A stone was placed over the mouth of the den, and it was sealed with both Darius's signet ring and also the rings of his lords. I don't know who the lords were. They probably were the presidents and the princes. This was a double sealing, and the reason for it was so that the king, I think the, the, uh, the, the lords, wanted it sealed with their rings because they didn't want the king to sneak somebody to the den, you know, it was night now, it was dark, and get Daniel out of there before the lions got him or whatever, or even just take his body and uh, declare that he had resurrected from the dead. 
I'm making that up just so because it sounds like, you know, the, the, um, the scribes and Pharisees, and they wanted Pilate to seal the, the tombstone, didn't they? Because they were afraid that Jesus' disciples would go and steal the body and then say he had resurrected from the dead. So, again, there's a lot of comparison here. Uh, but this was a double sealing. <clears throat> and... Uh, Oh, Pastor John Butler wrote this. He said, men may think that they can prevent God from interfering with their plans by putting up a lot of different stones of opposition. But no stone could stop the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, you can't keep life himself dead and the resurrection himself from just bursting right through that stone. The angel didn't remove it until after Jesus had resurrected and was out. But it says, he says, no, one, no stone can stop the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and no stone could stop the angel from entering the lion's den and protecting Daniel. And like Jesus, when he was taken to be crucified, what was the response of Daniel as he's arrested like a common criminal and thrown into this ravenous lion's den to be devoured. What is his response? Just like the Lord Jesus. He was so Christ-like, and he didn't even have Christ's example to follow, did he? <laughs> he just had the scripture that told him about God. And, um, he was, but he was just like him. He was as a lamb. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. We don't hear him getting angry at his accusers, cussing them up one side and down the other, do we? He, he didn't complain about the injustice of all of this. He uh, didn't complain to his earthly king, Darius, or to his heavenly king. He didn't struggle when he was led to the mouth of the den. Don't you think you would have been digging your heels into the dirt? No, no, no. As you get closer to that mouth of that den and you can hear the lions roaring down there. One man titled this lesson, and I would have used it, but it would be plagiarism. But he, <laughs> he entitled his lesson, The Lions and the Lamb. And that's so true. He committed himself silently and he just totally trusted his fate to God. Do you think that Daniel thought he would be delivered? One way or another, right? If he was delivered in death. Great, he'd be with the Lord. Well, he'd be in paradise, but that's another story. But anyway, you know, he'd eventually be <laughs> with the Lord. Um, but I think that he did have an inkling of an idea that he would be delivered because he knew he was innocent. He tells us that later on. But um, also, he had all this information that he had been given from God, and he knew he hadn't written it down yet, Right? So I think he knew I got to live to record all these miracles and prophecies. That's just my thought on it. All right, let's look at verses 18 to 20, the perturbed Darius. Then the king went to his palace and passed the night fasting. Neither were instruments of music brought before him, and his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste unto the den of lions and when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God, whom thou servest continually, able to deliver thee from the lions? That kind of shows us he had some doubt, right? Not quite so sure as the first time when he said, he will. Now he's saying, did he? Did he? 
All right. Now, this is what is interesting. The Holy Spirit inspired Daniel to, to focus the narrative at this point not on the main character. We're not focused on Daniel and what's going down there in the lion's den, are we? We're not even focused on Daniel's enemies who probably spent the night in a big celebration called Daniel is finally dead party, you know. We're not focused on on their celebration. Um, Rather, the Spirit inspired Daniel to focus his reader's attention on who? The king, on Darius. Why do you think that is? Well... For one thing, he's the king, and he can make a proclamation to the whole kingdom proclaiming that the God of Daniel is the living God. But also, there's a real sense, and I don't know if you've ever studied Daniel in the lion's den, getting this, understanding this, but when you tell it to your children, tell them this, because this is important. There is a very real sense in, in the, the fact that the lion's den episode was really more for Darius than it was for Daniel. We should remember this ourselves. The trials and the troubles of believers in Christ often have a great deal to do with those who are watching us. Think about Stephen. And his death, his martyrdom. Who was watching and who was so greatly affected that he just kept, he couldn't keep kicking against the pricks of his conscience when he saw that godly man die and thought about his witness. Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul and wrote 13 or 14 books of our New Testament. Remember, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses up above and down below, and they're watching. And they really are. They're watching us. So this really, the lion's den was more about Darius than it was Daniel. Daniel already belonged to the Lord, didn't he? And Darius was definitely a miserable man. He was miserable when he went back to the palace. He went back to the, you know, Daniel's in the den, and he goes back to his lush palace uh, after giving that regretful command. And he's so upset that he refused food. Verse 18 tells us he fasted, but don't get the idea that he was up all night fasting and praying. There's no mention of prayer here. This, just, this is a fast that is the result of his anxiety and his guilt and his stress. He just couldn't eat. You know, he's so upset he couldn't eat. So the lions and the lion king spent the night fasting. Nobody had food that night. <laughs> And we also learn that no instruments of music were brought to him. And the Aramaic word that is used there does not just refer to musical instruments. It refers also to other entertainment diversions such as dancing girls and or concubines. So he didn't have any of that that night either. And another thing he went without that night, which was beyond his own choice, was sleep. He had insomnia. Remember Nebuchadnezzar had insomnia in chapter 2 after he had that dream about that giant statue that got smitten and crushed down to nothing. Well, he has insomnia. He's so mentally torn up in his bedroom thinking about his choicest servant being physically torn up in the den that he was so full of guilt, don't you think? They couldn't sleep. 
I mean, he goes to put his head on his pillow, and then he starts thinking about Daniel being torn from limb to limb by a bunch of lions, and he just had no peace. The guilt was terrible. He had allowed an innocent man to die. And so he went all night without sustenance, no symphonies, no sex, and no sleep. <laughs> and that took me a long time to come up with all those S's. <laughs> Sin brings guilt. And guilt robs a man of peace. He had, he had, he had no peace that night. And I, I think about Peter in prison, the Apostle Peter. And uh, he was going to be executed the next day. And yet, what is he doing? He's sleeping. And, and he had to be kicked by the angel upside the head, as my mother-in-law used to say. <laughs> wake him up. Wake up. You know, I'm going to set you free. Oh, okay. You know? Just think of the difference. When we know the Lord, we can have that peace that passes all understanding. You know, when you go to sleep, don't keep your worries. Cast your cares on on the Lord. He never slumbers or sleeps. Give them to him and go to sleep. (laughs) All right. So he didn't have any answers for his troubled soul. What he didn't know was that God already had a plan. So let's look at the protection of Daniel, verses 21 to 23. Then said Daniel unto the king. Here we go. Let's say this together. Oh, king, live forever. (laughs) I don't know how many times we have read that little phrase in this book. But that's what Daniel says to the king when he shouts, you know, the king says, is your God, has he been able to deliver you? First thing Daniel says, oh, king, live forever. And then he says, verse 22, he gives the glory to the right one. My God has sent his angel and has shut the lion's mouths that they have not hurt me. For as much as before him, before God, innocency was found in me. And also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. I'm innocent before God and king, is what he says. Then verse 23, then was the king, I love the King James, exceeding glad. That's putting it mild. He was jumping for joy. He was exceeding glad for him, for Daniel, and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him because, why? He believed in his God. That's why he's in the Hebrews 11 chapter of faith, the Hall of Faith chapter. Because by faith, he was delivered from the lions, the mouths of the lions. All right. um, As soon as it was daylight... And the law no longer required that Daniel, whether dead or alive, remain in the den. Darius was up and on his way to learn the magnitude of the power or the lack thereof of Daniel's God. And he he runs in haste to the tomb. I mean, to the den. Same thing. (laughs) Who does that remind you of? Who got up at the crack of dawn to run to the tomb? Mary, Mary Magdalene. Um, And just like her, he, he he goes very early in the morning to see what happened. She didn't see, want to see what happened. She didn't have faith, did she, (laughs) at that point in time? And I don't think he does either, but he just, just in case, he goes. And when he got there, probably with some servants who removed for him that stone cover, he cried out with anguish and lament, it says, which tells us he didn't have a whole lot of hope, did he? With a lamentable voice as he peers down into that dark den and he calls out 
with only an inkling of hope. O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God, who thou servest continually, able to deliver thee from the lions. Now, he had never witnessed a miracle of God. Nebuchadnezzar had the fiery furnace deliverance, and even Belshazzar had, hadn't he? The finger writing on the wall. But Darius has never witnessed a miracle of God. But, but he had witnessed the living God in Daniel. And he knew that if Daniel had survived the night, it was something that only Daniel's living God could do. Did you notice he didn't speak of any other God being able to perform such a miracle, did he? He didn't say, did Ahura Mazda deliver you from the lion's den? No, he just said, did your God, you know, the living God. And the use of his term living God, we know, had to have come from Daniel, who we can be sure had witnessed to him. Just as he had witnessed over and over again to King Nebuchadnezzar, you know he witnessed to Darius. He had probably told Darius that unlike all the lifeless gods of Babylon, and, you know, that filled the Babylonian temples. Remember when he said to Belshazzar, you're toasting gods made of gold and silver and, and wood and stone, gods that are standing there, totally lifeless. They have eyes and they can't see, ears and they can't hear. They're just dumb pieces of material. And you're worshiping them instead of the living God? Don't you know he, had, he said that to, to Darius as well? <clears throat> so... Um, He had told him that his God, unlike their gods, his God was very, very much alive. He was the living God. And so Darius would regard the result of Daniel's lion's den test as proof as to whether what Daniel had been telling him was true or not. The result of Daniel down in the den would tell Darius whether his God truly was the living God or not. If Daniel's God did indeed exist, then he would surely, if he was going to deliver, if he was going to preserve anyone, he surely would deliver this amazingly faithful man who wouldn't even stop communing with him for 30 days in order to, to, to save his own neck, his own life, right? So if his God was real and if he was going to ever, if he had the power to deliver anybody, It would be Daniel. And then Daniel. Oh, my. What an example to us. Ever polite and respectful and not bitter, even in the lion's den. By the way, could God have delivered him from the lion's den? Could he have delivered, I mean, you know, from not even going in it to begin with? And and the, the three in the fiery furnace. But by letting them go through the trial... Who got more glory? God did. And their their faith got stretched a whole lot. And people, kings got converted and wrote proclamations. So there's a whole lot more glory in allowing the believer to go through a trial. But here he is, such an example to us. Even in the den, he is not bitter. And he responds to the king's question with that proper greeting, O king, live forever. Now, if that had been me, I might start shouting at the king, why in the world did you let this happen to me? Blah, 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 blah. But, O oh, king, live forever. He's still loyal to the man in authority over him, even though it was the king's folly that got him thrown into the den, you know, in the first place. What his example is for us is that when it comes to a situation where we have to obey God over man, 
You know, there's a lot of times, most of the time, we can obey both. Render to Caesar things that are Caesar's, God things that are God's. And we have no conflict. But when God's laws conflict with um, man's laws, we have to obey God, right? But even when we have to do that, we need to do it politely and properly. His example to us is that of obedient disobedience. Proper, polite protest. Wouldn't that make a difference in what's going on in our country today? If instead of all the looting and violence and everything that goes on, there was proper, polite protest. Obedient disobedience. Well, when the nobles and officers of the king would speak those words to Darius, O king, live forever, he knew it was just protocol and actually it was nonsensical flattery because he'd known kings before and none of them ever lived forever, right? (laughs) You ever know a king that lived forever? I know one. (laughs) <laughs> the king of kings. But he, he knew, knew it was just, you know, they're just saying it because that's what you say. But when those words came floating up to him from the mouth of that lion's lair, don't you know, those must have been the most beautiful words he had ever heard. It, it reminds me of Mary Magdalene when Jesus finally said her name, Mary. And she turned. Rabboni! (laughs) Don't you know Darius up there at the top of the den was like, Daniel! Daniel, you're alive! That's your voice! And there's no bitterness in it. Sweet release, I've been forgiven. He's alive and he's not bitter and he still loves me. Don't you know, he was so, he was just exceeding glad. (laughs) Exceeding glad. And when Daniel spoke, I mean, it meant he was alive. It meant he was alive. And that fact right there was definitely a miracle. Do you know that the liberals will say, well, the lions weren't really, um, they, they were sleeping. They were asleep. Well, that's not true because lions are nocturnal, which means they sleep during the day and they hunt at night. When did Daniel get thrown in? At night. And I'll go back to the lions and tell you what the liberals say and how that's proven wrong a little bit later. It was, it was a miracle that Daniel was still alive. And it had to be absolutely amazing to Darius that there was no anger or bitterness in his voice, in his tone, which would be very understandable under the circumstances, right? And when Daniel said those words, O king, live forever, he was not being a hypocrite. I mean, he knew, you know, kings don't live forever. But in this situation, he wasn't being hypocritical because he was speaking those words with sincerity because he wanted to understand what it meant for him, for the king, for Darius, what it meant for him that he, Daniel, was still alive. It meant that his God, just as he had told him, it meant that his God is real. He is the living God. And if Darius would believe that because of this amazing miracle, then guess what? He truly could live forever. It was really kind of a prayer. Oh, king, live forever. Get this evidence and accept the living God and live forever. You see, Daniel believed in resurrection. We know that from Daniel 12, 13. He knew that whatever happened to his body, his soul was safe. And at the last day, God would even raise his body 
and give him a glorified body. How did he overcome his lion's den test? Again, Hebrews 11, what does it tell us? By faith in the word of God. He overcame a great test, a terrible trial. We've had a lot of trials in our lives, haven't we? Uh, Can you imagine one like this? He overcame by faith in the word of God. And as he had done throughout his whole long life, he made sure to give God the glory for his deliverance. He told the king that his God had sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths. Now, who this angel is, we're not told. He could have been the angel of the Lord, which is a frequent title used in the Old Testament for the pre-incarnate Christ. When Christ appeared, you know, he's the eternal son of God. So when he would make appearances in the Old Testament, such as when he wrestled all night with Jacob, he's called the angel of the Lord. That's called a Christophany. This is how the Septuagint actually understands this passage, that the angel was the pre-incarnate Christ. Others say, no, it's just an angel. Later on, Daniel talks to Gabriel, and they say, well, it was maybe Gabriel. We don't know for sure. I tend to think it was Christ. I think that just as Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael spent the night, I mean, the fiery furnace episode with the Son of God walking there with them, that that this was Christ there with Daniel in the lion's den. So it may be that Daniel not only spent the night with a lot of, uh, with a pride or several prides, 15 lions make up a pride, and I think there were more than 15 lions, so there were several prides of lions in the den. He not only spent the night in the company of a lot of lions, but it may have been that he also spent the night with the Son of God, the mighty lion of the tribe of Judah. And notice it wasn't enough for Daniel to say to the king that he was alive. He wanted to say why he was still alive. He said, for as much as before God, innocency was found in me and also before thee. I'm innocent against my God and against you, king. And the fact that I am still alive is evidence, you know, it's the stamp of approval from God that I am innocent. If I was guilty, I wouldn't be alive. (laughs) But that's his endorsement that I am innocent before him and you. Do you want to know why the lions didn't eat Daniel? It's because they knew it's impossible to keep a good man down. (laughs) I know. All right. Um, And the miracle wasn't just that the lions didn't eat Daniel. They also didn't claw him to death, maul him to death. You know, they have long claws. A a lion is big. What if it just even sat on Daniel or pounced on him? The power could squish him. So there's a lot going on here. And then when you throw an old, frail, bony man (laughs) down a den and he hits the floor, like, what if it's like this, you know? You'd think there'd be a broken bone or something, right? So there's a lot. I mean, this is just beyond human rationalization. This was definitely a miracle. And Darius was exceeding glad, exceeding glad. All right, the punishment of of Darius. Now, this is verse 24. This is usually the part that moms and grandmas and Sunday school teachers don't tell the little kiddies. Verse 24. 
And the king commanded, and they brought those men which had accused Daniel, and they cast him into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives, and the lions had mastery over them, and break all their bones in pieces, or ever they came at the bottom of the den. Ew, this is not, this is not good, right? We don't like this part, because not only did the bad guys get thrown into the lion's den, and their bodies got broken before they even hit the bottom of the den, that's what it says, But who else went in the den with them? Their wives and their children. Now people get mad at that. They say, oh, God, how could you do that? God didn't do that. God's law, Mosaic law, says the fathers are not punished for the sins of the children. The children are not punished for the sins of the fathers. Deuteronomy 24, 16. Every man is accountable for his own sin. Who did this? Darius did this because it was the law of the Medes and Persians that the families of criminals would suffer the penalty with them. And again, that was a great deterrent to crime. You'd think twice before you committed a crime because your whole family would suffer with you. This wasn't God's doing. Um, So these guys, you know, who had duped Darius with their lies and flattery, they reaped what they had sown. And uh, they, it's like Haman's gallows, isn't it? They had wanted Daniel to spend the night with the lions. Guess what? They got to spend the night with the lions, the day with the lions. Well, actually, they didn't get to spend much time with the lions at all. Now, how many lions were in the lion's den? All right, let's think about it. Who accused Daniel? It says he threw those that accused Daniel. And by the way, the word accused means broken in pieces, which is interesting in Aramaic. Literally, broken in pieces. And what happened to them? Broken in pieces. Who accused Daniel? Two presidents and 120 princes, right? How many is that? 122 men. They might not have all had wives, but let's say most of them had wives and maybe at least two kids if you do just the, the minimum math, that's about 300 to 400 people. And yet we are told that they were broken in pieces before they hit the bottom of the den floor. So how many lions is that? A lot of prides, right? A lot. Now, I don't know. Maybe just the two presidents were thrown in with their families. I don't know. But those who accused him were all of them. So I have to assume it would be all of them. Anyway, there were a lot of lions in that lion's den. All right, the last part, verse 25 to 27. Then King Darius wrote unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Did Darius get saved? I don't know, but I don't like the fact that he said the God of Daniel. I would feel a lot more confident about his faith his salvation if he had said the God of Darius there. But he said um, that every, you know, that they tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. That's good. And steadfast forever. And his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed in his dominion, shall be even unto the end. Sounds a lot like the decree of Nebuchadnezzar. He delivereth and rescueth, and he worketh signs and wonders in heaven and earth. Who hath delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? That's the decree. The first decree was a bad one, written by the conspirators. This decree probably was written by the hand of Daniel, and it's wonderful. You know, a lot of people complain that the pagan peoples back in the day didn't get 
the news about the true God. That isn't true. First two kingdoms of the times of the Gentiles, the Babylonian and the Medo-Persian, everybody in those two kingdoms got word from the kings, the first kings of those kingdoms, Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, that the true and living God is the Jewish God, the God of the Hebrews. Fear and tremble him. God always gets his word out there, right? Daniel, Daniel, well, the faithfulness of Daniel resulted in God's name being lifted up in praise over all of the kingdom. Um, I wanted to say something, and I can't find where it's written. But, you know, Daniel did what Israel should have done. Israel was in captivity because she bowed before idols, right? Well, the three Hebrews, his friends, refused to bow before idols. Um, Daniel refused to pray to a mere man, which is another form of idolatry. Uh, He refused to um, compromise on the laws of God, the dietary law. He refused to compromise. The law, this law, he could have compromised by saying, well, I just won't pray for 30 days. You know, but he refused to do all that. That's what Israel should have been doing. Daniel did it, and his faithfulness, I mean, he used Daniel instead of Israel. And he was also a witness to Israel. I mean, it's just so amazing. But another thing I wanted to tell you in closing is that all of this is a picture, of Daniel in the lion's den is a picture not only of the Lord's resurrection, Um, from the lion's den of his tomb and death and all the lions that accused him. But shortly after Daniel emerged from the lion's den, all Israel was freed from their lion's den in Babylon. They were given a decree that they could return. So they were freed just like that. And then in the end times, we have this beautiful picture of what it's going to be like in the last days. Just as Daniel was cast into the lion's den and refusing to pray to a man who usurped the place of God, so will the Jewish people in the tribulation period fall under great persecution for refusing to um, worship the Antichrist who will pretend to be God. You have to worship him, uh, receive his mark, or be killed, be persecuted. And Israel, like Daniel, will refuse to do that. And like Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, refuse to do that. And so they will suffer greatly from the lions, the beasts of the tribulation. At the end of that seven-year time frame, the ravenous forces of evil will gather in mighty numbers to completely devour Israel at the Battle of Armageddon. But... Just when it looks like all the lions are going to pounce on little bitty Israel and devour her once and for all like Satan has wanted to do for so long. Just as they're ready to do that, one is going to sweep down from heaven. The lion of the tribe of Judah is going to sweep from heaven to shut every one of those mouths and make useless every claw of those brutal beasts. And they will be the ones who are devoured. And then Israel, like Daniel, 
will be delivered safe and sound, and she will be saved corporately as a nation. All Israel shall be saved. And then she, with us of the church age, and all the tribulation saints, will live for 1,000 years in God's kingdom on earth, where all the lions of this world will lay down in peaceful harmony with all of the lambs. And don't you look forward to that day. That's really going to happen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. There's just, oh, I get so frustrated, Lord, because you put so much in here, and I don't have enough time to talk about it all, but it's just so beautiful, so deep, so rich, so so profound, and... Mm, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of Daniel. Thank you that he did what Israel should have done. He did what the church should be doing. Because we too bow down to so many gods, like the gods of materialism and pleasure and et cetera, et cetera. And we too try to water down the truth of your word and change it and reinterpret it. Help us not to do that as the church. The church needs to repent. We need to repent and turn back to you. And Father, on behalf of the church, I ask for that. Forgive us of our sins. And Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you so much for your grace and mercy in saving us. If there's someone here who does not have a personal relationship with you, I pray she would turn to you today so that she might live in your presence forever with the rest of us rejoicing and singing your praises. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. We love you. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen. God bless you.